Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff After Hours Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Um, this case is a, a very, very uh, interesting case. Uh, I think we lost him for a second. Uh, I think what he was talking about was uh, he started to go into the case. It's the Summer Wells case, a missing uh, five-year-old child, female, missing since June 15th at about 6.30 p.m., uh, reported missing by her family. Oh, we got your back, Bill. Sorry, I had a, I had a little technical difficulties there. Anyway, uh, in, on June 15th. I gave a little intro about the uh, the girl and that uh, from when she was missing, Joe. Okay, uh, great. So we know that it's been 28 days. Now, this is a very, very difficult case because right now, really, the police aren't releasing the, all the information they have. So for us, it's a tough thing to uh, to figure out what they're doing. There's a lot of people online uh, predicting things that, that they don't, in fact, have the facts to know whether it occurred or not. So we only go, because we're the real police, we only go with facts. We're not going to go with rumors online. We go with facts, and we go with real investigative techniques. And tonight on this show, I have two outstanding investigators, and one to my right is Phil Grimaldi, straight out of Brooklyn, and he was a, he's a retired detective from the Intelligence Division and the 6-0 Squad. The last time I introduced him as a second-grade detective and someone on in the chat took great umbrage at that, as if I was demeaning him. Let me just explain our words on the NYPD. On the NYPD, there's three grades of detective, third, second, and first. A third-grade detective is an investigator. A second-grade detective is an investigator that gets paid $10,000 more than the third grader. He makes sergeants pay. A first-grade detective uh, gets paid $15,000 more than a police officer and he makes, or he or she makes lieutenants pay. Now, Phil Grimaldi is an outstanding detective, but since he only stayed 22 years, he didn't stay around long enough to become a first grade detective. So I don't want to in any way disparage him. Phil, anyway, welcome to the show. Thank you. I got my fan club on you, I see, huh? Yeah, you know something? You have some fans because someone said, when you called him a second grade detective, he put his head down and he was really upset. And I was like, this person's like imagining things, you know? I, I might have been looking at my phone, but I got to say, and I think I told you this earlier today, that shield back there to my, I guess it's to my uh, to my right, uh, it's third, when you get promoted, you're a third grade detective. Then as you move forward, you could get promoted to second grade and first grade, as you explained. I was just honored to be, uh, from when I was a kid, I wanted to be a detective. So when I got promoted, it was the best day in my life. And second grade was uh, was also a great day, but obviously no insult uh, met and uh, not not offended in any way, shape or form. It was a misunderstanding. Well, that that's, that's very fine. And the other handsome gentleman we have behind us, right in front of us, actually, he was my professor at John Jay College when I was studying for my master's degree. And his name is is Michael Fabozzi. And um, Michael Fabozzi now is a uh, is a COO of a company called Net Thunder in Silicon Valley. And he happens to be a computer crimes expert. And Michael, um, he was also a second grade detective. So 
you guys, you could see I didn't disparage him. Michael Fabozzi was a second grade detective, but now he's more than he used all his experience on the NYPD to start this company, Net Thunder. And he's a very successful guy. And he's going to explain some of the technological things we're going to uh, we're going to look into on this case. Now, I'm going to play I'm going to play the video of uh, of the, the the husband the husband and wife uh, when they first uh, were interviewed, and a lot of people that saw this were sort of uh, a little upset about uh, what they were saying. Uh, let me just bring it back a little bit. I'll bring the um, we're going to share this video to everyone. Somebody has come out here and took her and has lured her away from here. The parents of missing five-year-old Summer Wells saying they never thought she was in the woods near their home, but that they believe she was abducted. Search crews combing through nearly five square miles around the Wells' home. I have to do one step at a time, I guess, but I'm sorry that they had to spend so many man hours in these woods. And everything. I've seen them limping and everything else summer not the first girl to go missing in her family when my sister came missing i was in between arkansas and tennessee i don't know all of what happened or what did happen but i hope that they find her too when you see cases like that that's why i lose hope on summer you know i want to keep hope but sometimes i just I, I, I just I lose hope. Fear beginning to spread through the Wells home as Summer remains missing. And then it really bothers me to find out that we've had sex offenders living within eight minutes of my house. Keep a close watch on your kids. Yes. Don't let them out of your sight. Summer's parents saying they wish they could search every structure in America if it could help lead to finding her. Now that we know she's not in the woods anywhere, I wish we could focus on finding her. You know, I don't know what or I don't know. It was Bianca Murray reporting the family told Bianca to. So somewhat of a uh, bizarre interview, and I, I don't think there's anyone that I know from law enforcement that didn't find that interview at least disturbing and somewhat, uh, you know, a little bit uh, pointing guilt at the parents. You know, Bill, the, the interview, uh, you only played a short clip of it. There was, a, I don't know if there was more than one interview. There was one that was long and they both appeared to be intoxicated, whether it be on alcohol or drugs. And I said this in uh, the last episode, uh, just came across as a bad look. They, they presented themselves in a bad look. I think that uh, really sums it up. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's my opinion of watching that video. And I think everybody that in law enforcement feels the same way. You know, Phil, one of the things I wanted to get to, and now we get to uh, June 15th, uh, which is 28 days ago. And, you know, a lot of things happened that day. Uh, Candace took her mother to a hospital. She had her kids with her. She took them to uh, a pharmacy to pick up a, pres a prescription. She took them to a watering hole to take a swim. 
There was a 15-year-old boy at that watering hole. There was some allegations that she gave him alcohol and there was something going on between them. But none of that like is really pertinent. Well, it is pertinent, but we're more concerned with when she brings Summer home. We, we saw pictures of her and Barbara Butcher was on the show uh, the other night uh, on Duty Run show. And a lot of people viewed the photo of uh, Summer sleeping in the car and people were online were going crazy saying, oh, no, she's dead. She's not alive. She's dead. And Barbara Butcher, the 23 and a half year veteran uh, chief of staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner for 23 and a half years, has been to over 680 homicide scenes, attended thousands of autopsies, told us outright, you know, she's alive. And she analyzed the color of her lips, her hands, the position of her neck, all of those things. So she gave her expertise. So we have to take it from Barbara Butcher, who I've worked with many times on the streets of New York on real homicide cases, and she's an expert, and she's as good as it gets in that hey, field. Hey, Bill, can I just interject something? I watched that episode uh, on Duty Ron's show. I had not seen the picture, so when the picture went up, the first two things that she said, which were the color of the lips and the color of the skin, she mentioned those th two things right off the bat. That was the first two things that I thought of. I've seen hundreds of dead bodies, and it was quite clear to me that that was not uh, a dead body that I was looking at. And then she went into some other things that were very interesting with regard to how she thought it, uh, her, her head was tilted to the side over the milk containers, that uh, the skin would be draping, which is obviously indicative. I've, I've seen that on homicides before, on, on DOAs before. So uh, she was fantastic. And I think it's fair to say that we could put that to rest, that that picture is not of a dead child, but of a child that was asleep. Uh, it's clear to me, I mean, by that picture. Well, Phil, many people are even saying in the chat that, uh, you know, there's also rumors that she hit her head and, and drowned at, at the lake when they went swimming. And if she, she was in the lake and they actually had video of her in the lake, but they brought her home at some point. But that's where I'm not 100 percent sure. And what and and I'm gonna we're gonna get to the home. I'm gonna show you. Uh, Let me ask you a question, Bill. One question: That picture that we saw is that a picture that was allegedly taken on the way home? Do we know that? Is that that's what that e either on the home or on the way to the pharmacy or on the way to the convenience store? It had to be after the convenience store because they already had the milk jugs were in there. Okay, now so, uh, Mike could probably expand on this a little bit. I'm gonna bring up something. Maybe we'll talk about it a little later into the show. But if it's an iPhone and you take a picture with an iPhone, it'll give you a geographic location of where the picture's taken. It'll also give you a timestamp if you go into the phone, you know? So there's probably a way to double check when that, if they allege that that's a picture that was taken after they left the watering hole before they got home at some point between the watering hole and grocery shopping, you know, and then going home, there's a way, if that's what they claim that that picture came from, there's a way, if it's an iPhone, as I said, I'm not sure about other phones, but I'm certain because I know I have a friend that works for uh Homeland Security had to use an iPhone for certain pitches that he had to take. So maybe you know, Mike Phil, can expand on that. Phil, you're stealing the thunder of, of, of the COO of Net Thunder uh, in Silicon <laughs> Valley. So sorry, sorry. I'm just going to, we're going to get to that. I just want to show you. And so Mike knows this is an aerial photo of their home. So you could see it's surrounded by forests. It's uh, got a, a big piece of land. There's all kinds of wild animals around there. Uh, I don't know 
how powerful the cell sites and all the electronic, the Wi-Fi is in that area. Here's a uh, a level picture of the home. Okay, so the the story is at some point that uh, Candace, the mother, brought her home and they were um, they were digging and planting flowers on the property somewhere. Um, at some point, uh, Summer wanted to go into the house. Now, her three brothers are in the house, and that, that's her three brothers right there. So at some point, she walked into the house and then went down to the basement, and that was the last time she was ever seen. Now, one of the things I would like to say is I have no idea what the results were of the interviews of these three young boys because we don't, we're not privy to the case folder. We're not privy to the investigators talking to these three young boys. Did they, in fact, see their sister come into that house, or did they never see her? That, to me, is one of the most important interviews in this entire case. So I agree with you, Bill. I agree on that. Because if they saw her, then, you know, then we know she was – we have that as a starting point. That's where she absolutely went missing. That, that would give us a, a place in time that she was, I mean, a firm place in time that she was last seen. If those kids could say, yeah, they came home from swimming or the store or whatever it was, and it was around 630, like they're saying, that she was last seen. And not, not only the mother and the father are saying, now you got the siblings, which I think they would be pretty easy to, you know, in an interview to see if they were uh, telling a story, if they were being truthful, you know. So I think that would be solid information. Great point, Bill, that that interview is very important at the start of this investigation. You know, and the other thing. The age, Go ahead, Mike. Bill, I'm sorry. Um, the age of those children also, they look older. So maybe 11 and nine years old. Uh a pretty pretty decent interview. You you would have information that she was alive. She was ever in that basement. You know, Mike. Someone in the chat is asking who you are. That this is Detective Mike Fabozzi, a retired second grade detective, an expert on uh, computer crime, the COO of a company named Net Thunder out of Silicon Valley. So Mike is probably one of the most highly uh, trained experts in computer crime, probably in the nation. So not only was he uh, an NYPD detective, so he's one of us, but now he's entering the world of big bucks, you know, and and he's got lots he's got lots of knowledge in that. So let's let's now go back, and this is where the science is going to come in. Okay, I want to talk about the science involved here because one of the things they're talking about is they're talking about this red pickup truck. All right. Now in New York City, and I don't, and we're talking from our experience, they have these plate readers all over the city, and they also have them mobily on radio cars and unmarked cars. These plate readers take pictures of thousands of plates, like in an unbelievably speedy time. I don't know, probably in seconds they take thousands of pictures. Not only are the plates read through a database, but the owner is checked for criminal history, they're checked for DMV records, they're checked for all of that. So we want to know, does this technology exist in Tennessee? You, you know, I'm so sorry. So the technology is, is nationwide, but it also depends on the county or, or uh, that's paying for it. So these, th these 
license plate readers cost money. So if that county is not uh, is a poor county, they may not pay for the license plate reader. Uh, one thing I'd like to say is that you're talking about thousands of photos. You know, the, 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 the infrastructure that's done for these for these license plate readers and facial recognition are tens of thousands, if not millions of photographs are taken in New York City, which is, you know, a high threat area. Uh, and, and, you know, it's very expensive to implement this infrastructure. So maybe in that county, they may or may not have it. You know, Mike, I had thought that possibly uh, those license plate readers would have been supplied by the federal government. And I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's a state government thing. But they're, in New York City, they're invaluable because they actually have tracked terrorists coming in, out, in and out of Brooklyn and knew exactly what the call was, where, where it went and where it returned to. So they're that, invaluable. That's one of the points I wanted to bring up, Bill. When, when uh, one of those... Uh, license plate readers, either if it's mounted on the back of a patrol car, which in, in a lot of areas, I've seen them outside of New York State, so it might be federally funded where they, they, they have the two cameras on the back of the car. But it gives a location and a time. Like you were just talking about, there was a terrorist attack in Manhattan couple of years back and they tracked, I think the guy mounted the sidewalk and ran over a bunch of people, but they were able to track that. He came into the, through the Bronx at like 9.59 AM and at 10.07, he crossed another camera and there was all the different traffic cameras and the plate readers. And they were able to, an exact location and time of the path that he took to get to where he committed the, uh, the heinous act. Right. But Phil and now, and Michael also, uh, you could answer this too. What we're trying to find out technologically, they're looking for a red pickup truck that was in this area at this specific time. Can we use the available technology to, to find out if there is such a red pickup truck that was in that area at that time? So one of the ways to do that is to uh, access any cameras that are in that area. So if there is a, a supermarket or, uh, or a, a store or, or a, a place that uh, if there's a toll, something like that, those are all over a lot of counties. Uh, one, of the, one of the newest technologies is facial recognition. And if, if you go into a, uh, some of the department stores or Walmarts, that there's, there's facial recognition done throughout the organization. So if someone comes into a, a, a target in, in uh, a small town or, or a target in New York City, and let's say they're a known thief, that facial recognition will identify them in both stores. And the facial recognition technology is super quick and super accurate. So that's one way. You the know, Mike, just to, just to cut you off for one second, I know in this county they had... 64 identified uh sexual predators and i think in the in the in this town there was as many as eight so that's something that we know as investigators would be checked out right away that would be checked out we would go visit give them a visit because being registered sex offenders they have to give up some of their rights it's yes, almost also, like on parole. also any registered vehicles right if they have a registered truck a registered truck just going to say that. Right. So, Phil, you want to, there's, there's another way, and we, we spoke about this today, Phil. There's something called a lawman search. And all, every detective that I know in New York City has done that search. And it's, 
from what I understand, it's quite a voluminous job and it, it, it's a lot of work. But Phil, you want to explain it to the audience what a lawman search is? Sure. Um, lawman search is uh, the police department in New York City works with the Department of Motor Vehicles. And a lot of times you'll get uh, a crime is reported and they give a description of a vehicle and sometimes they give a partial plate. So let's say you have a white Cadillac, uh, brand new, and you have the first three letters of a plate. And let's say the crime took place in Brooklyn, New York. So what you do is you'd order a, a lawman search for any late modeled white Cadillac with those three numbers, and you'd probably narrow it down to maybe a couple of dozen. Now, in a case where, in this case, you're looking at a pickup truck that's either late 90s to early 2000, they, they said it was a Tacoma pickup truck, a Toyota Tacoma pickup truck. Now, I believe it was picked up on video surveillance. There had to be some video cameras somewhere in the area, and the police in the uh, press conferences, they kind of stressed that this truck is just a person of interest that could be a witness. They kind of stressed that they weren't looking at it so much as being possibly a person of interest or a subject uh, in the crime. Now, we don't know, may or may not be true. The police uh, stressed it that way. So if they did a, law, uh, um, a lawman search in that county, let's say they would put in the Toyota pickup truck, which is the make, the Toyota Tacoma, and they would go from, let's say, 1998 to 2002, and they would see if any are registered in that county. Now, let's say, for argument's sake, none come up with that red or it could be maroon, whatever it is, uh, none come up. Then you would expand the search outward. Like I talked about a search in New York, I would do Brooklyn. And if nothing popped in Brooklyn, we would go to the whole five boroughs and you, you'd expand outward. And let's say you get a dozen of the, those vehicles in that county. You'd go and interview every one of those people and try to take a look at the vehicle. Now, you would you would have maybe some identifying marks from that video or whoever is describing it. Maybe they say there was a, uh, in this particular case, they said there were white buckets in the back and a ladder. So if you go knock on a door and you see the pickup truck on, on one of the, uh, one of the follow-ups that you're going to do, and you see the white buckets, you know, you're pretty, you know, you're, you're in the right, uh, you're in the right field here. You know, you're getting closer to. Uh, so so Phil, all, all of this stuff has to do with also using the investigative tools, but also then cross-checking. And dotting your, you know, dotting your eyes and crossing your T's and keep going. Someone in the chat just asked, "What do we, uh, Jackie Blue? What do we know about the three-ish hours between getting home and planting flowers?" I'm so sorry if this has been answered. No, uh, Jackie Blue, you know something? That's a good question because it hasn't been answered for me either. And you know, there's just a lot of rumor and conjecture, and we're going by what Candace said, is is that Summer went into the house. And went missing at 6.30. But we don't, in fact, know if that's true. What would really help us to know whether or not is, if that's true is the interview of the brothers, of the three young men. Because they're the only, they're the ones that allegedly saw her go down the stairs. But we don't know if, in fact, that is true or not true. So that's what's being told us to us by the mother, Candace. But we have no idea uh, whether that's true or not. You know, one of the things, uh, not a lot, a lot of things, you know, when you talk about cross-checking also, is there, are there tolls in that area? You know, one of my favorite things to do on a big investigation, we used to hand out flyers and it was on the front, help us help you. And we would have a picture of the little girl and it would explain the case. You know, this is Summer Wells. And we would hand out these flyers 
all over the place at toll booths, shopping malls. And it would say on the front, help us help you. If you have any information, call this number and I'll let the police know. At this point, Phil, I think you, you told me before the show, there are over 850 tips. But so far, actually, actually, it's up to 935 now. 935. I checked it right before we went on the air. So, so far, these tips have not resulted in anything of, you know, of smoking gun nature. Uh, I don't know if they've, in fact, been, been helpful at all. But we, a lot of us talked about, you know, based on watching the video of, of, of Candace and Don Wells, we, we talked about the fact that they are the, probably the number one suspects. And I, I hear it in, in the chat all the time is that, oh, you're disparaging these people. You're this, you're that. We're investigators. You know, we look into things. We turn over rocks. We see what's under the rock. If there's nothing under the rock, we move on. But we don't, we're not in the business of disparaging people. We're in the business of reality and trying to solve this case and find this five-year-old girl. Right. Like, and get the, to the truth of it. That's 100%. It. Right? And listen, they, they could be looked at and then cleared. You know, there's 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 a chance that they may not be suspects this time. But our instincts and from our investigative history that, you know, we, we've been uh, together between the three of us. We got close to 75 years in law enforcement. I think that, uh, you know, you're going to go with your gut instincts and I would be looking at them for sure. But maybe, uh, you know, through interviews and, and uh, follow ups, you can uh, you can clear them as suspects, too. You know, well, you know, something, Phil, that's that's beautiful because, right, you either include someone or you exclude them exactly. by, you know, your, your investigative steps that you take. And, you know, you'd love to see them excluded, but right now some of the things they say have sort of put them, put them in the mix. And I mean, I would love to know what the police have, not what these internet sleuths have that are all telling, you know, Oh, this and that and the other thing. And really, uh, you know, that's not helpful when you're just spreading rumors and, you can see we're not claiming anything is an absolute here because we don't, in fact, know. We're just going with our experience and telling what possibly could be done investigatively to solve this case. And, Bill, there's um, there's multiple agencies looking into this, right? You have the local sheriff's office. You have the TBI, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, which is similar to a state police uh, investigative unit. And maybe uh, the FBI as a missing child. Um, so there, there, there's a lot of people looking at it. We all looked at the video, uh, the interviews. They looked like they weren't giving truthful statements in, when they were a answering those questions, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, you have to keep digging. We don't have the case folder. We don't have all the information that the detectives have. You know, I'm going to just show you this is a... Uh, there they're very religious and they, they go to this, um, this local church and this gentleman from the church has been taking their sons around, uh, you know, because apparently, obviously they're very upset about what happened. Let's take a look. Yesterday, at this. uh, took them and to the, uh, put, put golf course here in Kingsport and just to try to let them have a peaceful day away, away from the search and rescue teams going on their property and, uh, the agents coming up, there there was someone who made a comment that wasn't very polite. And Dotson was called to the Wells property the night Summer went missing. We, we definitely wanted to have a uh, church family there with them. 
He says the family is having a hard time coping without summer. Mom, mom is devastated. Mom uh, does not want to leave the house. Uh, she, like, summer comes back. If she happens to wander up back up, I want to be here. Just, I can't imagine what we're going through. And they're just, uh, they're, they're just uh, parents that they, they want their daughter back. And, and you have these three young boys and they, they want their younger sister back. Dotson says he has a nightly ritual praying for summer's return. I set out at night the sun sets and I play a song for summer. So you can see, obviously, yeah, the boys are super upset. Their sister is missing. You know, the kids are the, the innocent ones in, the, in these cases. And you, you hate to see the suffering that these young boys are going through, uh, missing their five-year-old sister. You know, Bill, can I make thing. a point about uh, something that the mother said, a little bit of a red flag for me. She mentioned uh, that there was a certain amount of uh, sexual predators, registered sex offenders in her area. And the husband joined in and said, yeah, you know, watch your kids. Almost like they're prejudging a motive and they're pointing in a direction. I don't know that uh, people that had a five-year-old missing kid would be going that route. Uh, they might be pleading for the retu safe return of their child. Uh, you know, it, it could be uh, nothing, but to me, it's kind of a red flag. It's almost like they're pointing in a direction that they want the police to look at, or they want to, you know, start to have, uh, you know, say, well, it wasn't us. Look, it was these sex offenders in the area. Could be wrong. Obviously, we don't have uh, intimate knowledge of the case or the case folder, but that's a bit of a red flag for me from that interview, besides their, their look. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I, I just, I don't, I mean... If what my kids were missing, I'd be a basket case. Of course, I, I'd be I'd be flipping out. I wouldn't be so calm. Uh, you know, the guy Don Wells. You know, we discussed this on a previous case. He's no stranger to law enforcement. I think he's taken like six or seven collars across different state lines. He's got some uh, heavy duty issues. You know, he's been arrested being drunk with a gun, domestic violence, and a host of other crimes. So. He comes across as, you know, almost priestly in the way he talks, that soft, you know, uh, measured speech. But when he came up with some of the things like, oh, I hope she's not in some basement. I think she was abducted. I, you know, that's when you hear someone say that, that is definitely raises red flags. Like, how do you know that? And why, why would you say that? You know, right. Mike, any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, both both parents, uh, I, I would like to interview separately and, um, you know, get answers to some of those questions. I didn't like their that media look and what they were saying. Uh, you know, the whole the flower, the flower bed thing was a little weird and that the, the girl just went back to the house. It just it you know, there has to be follow up questions. A hundred percent. Mike, we're going to cut and Phil, we're going to cut to a commercial and then, Mike, I want to come back and I want to talk about that highly technical thing called geofencing, which okay. I would I would hope you could explain to us because I sure as hell can't explain and, it. And I'd like to touch on the photograph, too. A hundred percent. OK, let me just go to this quick break and we'll be back with that. And Phil, you got to be ready for your commercial, too, right? Ready. OK. Folks, if it, in the New York area or any area, any area of the country, if you're tired of where you're living and you want an easier life, a slower life, uh, Carol Waters is a, is a realtor down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Carol used to work as a bartender, 
Manhattan at the Fitzpatrick Hotel for over 20 years. She's actually from County Mayo in Ireland. And her husband, Rob Mayen, was former NYPD who rolled over to the fire department. Now, both of them are a team selling real estate down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They're very successful at it. They're million-dollar salespeople. And there's no one else more qualified to sell you a home down there, a condo, a vacation home. If you're interested, give Carol Waters a call, 914-261-6681, or email her at carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. Okay, so you find yourself in a situation where you might need legal representation. God forbid, but if you do, you're going to be in the legal arena. In the legal arena, you want somebody that's going to fight for you in your corner because you could be facing a fight of your life. Joe Murray is not only a tremendous attorney, he's also a former member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of the fence. And when he tells you that, he means it. He also was a boxer, so he's really in your corner. You could get a hold of law, uh, uh, Joe at jmurraylaw.com. That's his website, jmurraylaw.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. His email, joe at jmurraylaw.com. jmurraylaw.com. Phil, that was unbelievable, man. I thought Joe Pesci was reading the commercial. That was fantastic. <laughs> and I have him in my phone. In case anybody's interested, you know. That, that was outstanding. Okay, Mike, we had asked um, about, you know, geofencing. Uh, this is your chance to, to shine. I gave you an awful lot of kudos in introducing you. Don't disappoint me. Uh, so I won't. So uh, one of the things to look at in an investigation is the actual location. And the first thing I want to touch on is the photograph uh, that we were talking about earlier that has a timestamp. It'll have a time and date stamp. And that information from a smartphone, and, it, and he said iPhone, but it could be any any mobile phone. Uh, all that information, where, where the photo was taken, what time it was, and also the the... The geofencing is any cell phone that's in that area at that time. So the investigators could use that photograph to get a real timestamp of the date and time. In addition to that, they could subpoena or send a, put a search warrant on the uh, Google or Apple for that particular phone that would have any photograph on that that on that device. Uh, the email attached to that device, text messages, and uh, and searches. For example, like you wanted to, uh, you're searching, uh, you know, how to dispose of a body. Like th that could be on on the uh, the data on the on the cell phone. The geofencing sort of you could subpoena any phone because you have a specificity of the date and time of other cell phones that are in that area at that specific time. And then you could use like a concentric circle that goes round and round and, and increase the distance of, of that cell phone tracker because you have a specific date and time where that child was alive in that vehicle. Now, newer cars can also transfer data. The, and that, let's say the, the wireless of the, of the, not only the phone, but also it's, it may be emitting information um, like the tire pressure, like th that, that, like th the, the amount of data that, that can be captured uh, is tremendous. So, so moving out on, uh, from that, from that original photograph could, could pull other people into the investigation and then a second subpoena or a second search warrant could get their name and then their email 
and, and do search warrants. It, it, it's a lot of work. It's it's a ton of data, but that's what you need to do in a missing or a homicide case. Mike, I have a quick question for you. Is this uh, information generated from cell towers? So, so it's two separate things, right? What I'm talking about is uh, um, the cell tower is very good information for for lo locality. Also, that will also determine uh, what what phones are pinging at that particular time. So, yeah, cell cell phone tower information uh, is part of it. Okay. No, Mike, that that's like incredible. But and now, does every jurisdiction? have the ability and the skill level to do this? Or is this like a big city type thing? You think that this county in Tennessee would have the ability to do a, a geofencing search like this? So, so I, I, I don't know the answer. I don't know the county that well, but I would say the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation and the FBI, certainly. Um, I think this case, a missing five-year-old is important enough to have a U.S. attorney uh, assigned or a district attorney that can do the search warrants. Uh, also, that they may have computers in the house. Uh, there's cameras on those computers. They may have Alexa in the house that picks up her voice. And so you could subpoena Amazon and say, here, I have a snippet of this girl's voice at this date and time. Is there any voice date and time past this date? And then we would have a later date where she's alive. That's so a, if a law enforcement agency would subpoena cell phone companies, is that how it would work? If I'm not quite understanding. Yeah, it I say uh, search warrant. You want to do, uh, let's say it was in, uh, an iPhone. Uh, you would have uh, any iPhones in that, that date and time. Let's say we start with the camera that took the picture of the girl when she was alive. All the information, all the data on that phone is in storage at Apple. Right. And so a liaison or an attorney would, would send a search warrant on Apple. And, you know, I, I you know, I started doing this way back in, uh, was it two, uh, 95 or 96 to AOL records um, back in the day. And so um, the, the, in, in my experience, the law enforcement liaisons of these giant tech companies are very helpful in these investigations. I was talking about the geofencing, though. The geofencing, not, not specifically the cell phone. The geofencing, would that be a subpoena or a search warrant would go to cell phone companies, or how would we get that information? Yeah, we go. it would go to the phone company. Okay, okay. You know, folks, a lot of you are asking uh, about, you know, and we're baffled by this, too. Where did Summer actually go missing from? I don't think we can pinpoint that really now based on what we know. Well, uh, the interviews you were talking about, Bill, with the two or, or three brothers, if their interviews were positive that they, they believed that they were there, then you'd have a pinpointed, uh, you know, date and time that she disappeared. If they can, you know, all three of them say, yeah, she was there when she came back from swimming or from the store or whatever it was. But we really don't know that. So I, I think you're right. At this point, it's kind of unclear when she exactly disappeared. You know, when there's so much like uh, rumor and innuendo, and especially, you know, online, the, the, the different shows, the online sleuths putting together all these different, uh, they're not facts unless we can cross check them against other things. You know, as we say in law enforcement, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's. But Mike, if, if it were, if we could pinpoint it, 
that she was missing from that location at 6.30 at night, this geofencing technology could really, really, really help us, couldn't it? Oh, it certainly could. I, I also have something else to add. You know, it, you said that was a, a, a Toyota Tacoma. I, I would also, there there are computers inside those cars that that also would, would tell you maybe the path that she had taken or the path that, that uh, their vehicle was in. So let's say the, I, I, the mom and dad were in the car and they said they went from a swimming hole to the house. Well, you, you could actually pull data out of the car to say, well, maybe, maybe it, you know, they went 40 miles east. Uh, that's another avenue of, of, of information that uh, investigators could find. You know, to expand on that too, Mike, on the phones, there's different apps. Like if you use uh, a, a navigation through your phone, let's say rather than the car, you can go back and tell, and it'll tell you the, the route that you took. And then there's other apps like a, a Life360 app that I have for my children. And you can just go into that and it'll give you the last couple of routes that they took with the car and stuff. So if the mother or the father or anybody that is suspect in this thing, if they get a subpoena on their phone, there's a ton of information that would come out of it, as well as very good point that you made, Mike, about the vehicles. Like my cars, it sends information back to the to the you know to the uh, to the company that you know my oil changes do or the top pressure on my tires, like you were saying. So there's a lot of different technologies that could you know, really draw a roadmap on where these people were when they claimed that this young lady went missing. Yeah. You know, the first thing I would do is try to get the phones, uh, of the mom and the dad, anyone in the house, even if the older child has a phone, uh, because th there's so much information, so much data in there, uh, routes have taken and any, any cell tower that was pinged. And then, right and pictures and, and that'll have date and timestamps that you can't change. You know, they, they, they're, they're hard wired into the cell phones. I had the occasion to work on a homicide a few years back, a relative was murdered and uh, the cell phone technology, and this is five years ago, was unbelievable. Uh, the bad guy was using the cell phone when he was at the victim's home and it gave, while he was using it, it gave an exact location to put him outside of the house. And then while he was in the area, he was pinging the cell tower. Well, he wasn't using the phone, but the phone was hitting the cell tower and it gave a general area, I think within maybe like 25 yards or something like that. So it was super effective in getting a conviction of on that particular case, super effective. As well yeah, as the video the past five years, it's even more pinpointed. You know, if you use Waze, for example, or, or Apple Maps, um, it, it the, this, you know, if you make one turn, it knows uh, based on satellite information uh, that, that where you are to, to, you know, within three meters, like yeah. a couple of feet. The one, the one problem they may run into in this particular case is they did say that the cell phone service was spotty because it was mountainous terrain. So there might be some breakoffs and stuff. But like you said, Mike, I would go for everybody's cell phone that was in that house and start there. Obviously, the interviews too. But uh, those cell phones would provide a ton of information, I'm sure. So, Mike, if if a car that, you know, say this red pickup truck was in fact someone that, that kidnapped Summer, some of this technology could, in fact, identify that truck 
being in the area at the specific time that we're talking about? Yeah, that 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 is a tough question. There there are technologies that, depending on the vehicle, that will ping sort of like a newer car, what like the oil change stuff, or or there's actually new technology that um, uh, drive-through restaurants are trying to uh, use that will know your order by driving through the drive-through at, at at a fast food restaurant. So th there's constant data being sent out and, and pinged so that uh, companies could could gather that and help help with transactions. You know, Mike, another thing is that uh, a lot of folks, they watch a lot of TV, they watch a lot of movies, and the police order information from AT&T, they order it from whatever the carrier is, and they're led to believe that they give it to you right away. Some of this stuff can take can take weeks to come back, yeah. correct? Yes, um, you know, subpoena information or search warrant information, and because the you have to think how big, um, you know, the smartphone companies are. If it's AT and T, Verizon, Apple, uh, Google, the, the amount of requests from from federal agencies, from intelligence community, from lo local law enforcement, state police, and that there's investigators inside those organizations that have to call out information. And, and you have to be specific, otherwise they just give you the minimum. But if, you know, you, like I said, that photograph has a date and timestamp, you need anything at that particular moment, we know that she was alive, that, that investigators inside those large organizations will provide a lot of data back to you. But you have to make it more, less, more specific and less broad uh, in these investigations. To reference that case that I just uh, mentioned earlier, I noticed those type of uh, requests are also quite expensive. I know on, on the case I referenced, the FBI spent a couple of hundred thousand dollars between cell phone dumps and uh, cell tower dumps. I mean, a cell tower dump is very expensive from my understanding. So there's a, a cost factor involved for these small police departments. And I believe the sheriff today in a, in a press conference, uh, Ronnie Lawson, was saying he's up to 3,200 man hours on this case. That's just his office, not counting the TBI and, and uh, FBI. You know, someone had asked on one of the previous shows, oh, why wasn't she reported missing? Well, a, an Amber Alert is reporting someone missing at the highest level there could be. Uh, to qualify for an Amber Alert is uh, there's, there's many things that uh, has to be present. They don't just let anyone, they don't issue an Amber Alert just for anyone that wants to be reported missing. So there has to be verification that the person is in fact, that there's uh, maybe foul play, there's, there's other things involved. But she was definitely the subject of, of, of an Amber Alert. And you know something, we all hope and pray that uh, summer is, is found at some point. You know, 28 days, I mean, look, kids have been found after years being missing, you know. And I pray and hope that law enforcement, and I know that they're doing their best, the, the damnedest job, they're probably not getting any sleep, they're working around the clock, they're working in concert, the FBI, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, the local police, and other first responders that are trudging through the horrendous terrain here, uh, dangerous terrain. You could see that. There's all kinds of animals, snakes. There's all kinds of stuff. And, you know, the search hasn't stopped. And it, that's all part of this, this investigation. And, you know, a little girl's missing. They're going to do everything they possibly can to find her. 
So, so Bill, I have a question for you. Was there uh, like dogs assigned where, where they have the girls sent and, and put around that property? Uh, all I see is like local people helping out with that grid search. You know, I, uh, Mike, I don't know 100% sure if they had bloodhounds, but I'm sure they pulled out all the stops. You know, at this point, they probably also had cadaver dogs. You know, right. I'm sure there was an aerial search. There were helicopters involved. You know, they, there they, was media reports. The search kind of, uh, I don't know that they utilized civilians right away. Maybe now they did. But in the beginning, there was a, a media report. It was like a weekend, and they were saying that they wanted to keep track of all of the people that were involved in the search because if a civilian gets into the woods and gets lost or attacked by an animal, they, they wanted to be able to keep tabs on everybody. But since the search spread so far out and it expanded to hundreds of acres, I said this last time that we met, that I think that they they, they have a strong feeling or a sense law enforcement is, is really uh, searching them woods that they must have reason to believe that she's in them woods. Now, if a, a five-year-old wandered off, I think the search would be contained to a sm much smaller area. You know, they're talking about hundreds of acres. Kid couldn't have walked that far, couldn't have gotten that far in, in you know, a short period of time. So to me, I, I said this in the last time that I was on this show, um, it sounds like there was uh, a direction that they were going in and they seemed to be confident. And they, they were actually going on the news and telling people, be careful when you when you mow your lawn, make sure you look. Uh, the fields, you know, the grass is growing. You're going to be mowing to keep an eye on your fields. And they even went so far as to say, if you can't look over your property, get a hold of us. We'll send someone out to your property to look over it. So th that's telling me that they feel that she's somewhere in those woods, that they're doing these extensive searches, you know. You know, I just want to shout out to a bunch of folks uh, in the in the in the live chat. Scott Wagner, big fan of Police Off the Cuff. Annie Moy, uh, Lori Newland, Amanda Svetza, Kim Clayfin, Click Eastwater, um, Anastasiak twenty three. That was a that was a little bit of a tongue twister for me. California Thunder, Catherine Dawn Marie, always around. Thank you so much, folks. If you're not a member of the Police Off the Cuff family. Please go on our site on YouTube, uh, subscribe, hit the like button, ring the bell, you know, tell us how much you love us in the live chat. We also have a Patreon. Uh, that's, you know, Police Off the Cuff on, on Patreon. We have three tiers. Uh, for $7 a month, which month is the bucket. Uh, $9 a month is Polish My Rack. And $11 a month, you get to dip them in butter. And that's the premier one that we always try to get everyone to say. Because it feels good to dip them in butter. White Rabbit, uh, oh. who had contracting work done in an area on or around the same date. White Rabbit, I'm not sure. Duty Ron, one of our biggest supporters and uh, one of the, the architects of uh, Police Off the Cuff, uh, really picking up on the amount of subscribers. Man, Folks, in the last two weeks, because of you guys, we added over 3,000 new subscribers to the Police Off the Cuff family. And hey, Bill, I'd like to shout out to uh, Scott Wagner also. Also, we worked in the 3-0 squad together. So, oh, that's great. That's great. He should have taken you. He should have took your class at John Jay in the master's program, right? Well, he went into homicide, so I. Think. Know, I, I, I made sure that uh, Mike Fabozzi, he was my professor back then, and uh, I had gone back to college, uh, and I, I had at the time I think I had 17 years on the police department. And it was really difficult to go back to college because I hadn't been to college in over 20 years. And, you know, in 2000, that's when I started, computers were relatively new for me. I didn't know how to use Microsoft Word. 
I didn't know how to cut and paste. I didn't know how to do anything. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be tough. And it was tough for me, but I made it through. And um, as I said, Mike was my computer crimes uh, professor. And then he wound up becoming second grade detective. That's higher than a third grade detective. Make sergeants pay. And now not second uh, rate, second grade. Not, not second rate, second grade. And uh, now he's uh, a big shot in Silicon Valley. Uh, Exploitation Nation USA. That's an older car. I went to a drive-thru and it automatically reads my cell phone. Says it's right on their on their order computer. That's it's amazing. You know the things, the technology that we're able to use these days to make our life more convenient also uh, invades our privacy. But if you want convenience in this life, you have to give up some of your privacy, right? Look, look at Easy Pass. You can fly through the thing at sixty-five miles an hour, and it reads your uh, it reads your uh, your car that, and they charge your account. And if the if there's a different plate on the card, they'll send you a letter saying you got to update the license plate. So at sixty-five miles an hour, you're going through that thing. So a drive-through is like a walk in the park for those type of computers, you know. Rick Sloth reluctant to take the ER because of sex abuse. You absolutely know that, Brick Sloth. Uh, I mean, I don't have any confirmation of that. Marie Green, I still say boys were told to say she went to the basement to play. Can't wait for their interview. Yeah, we don't know the results of their interview, Mary Green. I would love to know that too. But the police smartly, in this case, are being very closed-lipped. And I say that smartly because if you put too much information out there, it can really hurt the investigation. You put too little out there, it can also, because you have to use the press and the media. You have to play them like a violin. You have to have them help you in the case and put make the public aware of what's going on, but not don't give too much information that it absolutely that it hurts the case. Crime Powell, thank you for being here. Leah Powell, Ladybug, Wendell Randall, uh, Nat Mann, uh, Catherine, Joshua, of course, our, our engineer, and the Pranzos. Uh, Richella, Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, Harlem Raiders, hoorah. Lieutenant Pranzo uh, is the NYPD legend. Folks, I want to we... give a shout out too, Bill, if you don't mind. Go ahead, go ahead Phil. I want to give a shout out to all the new subscribers that are now subscribing to Police Off the Cuff because this is a great channel. We did a lot of great shows recently. If you go back and you look in the history, there's some great interviews. Joe Pistone, there was some uh, organized crime with uh, Tommy Dade's uh, shows. And if you really uh, want to look at an attorney, you can look at Joe Murray. He's been on a lot of the shows. And you'll see how I threw some questions at him legal, and he answered them right away. So the new subscribers, welcome. Uh, glad to have you on board. It's a great show. Stay with us. Tell your friends. And uh, you're not going to be disappointed. Check out the old episodes. Factual breakdown. Enlightened one 25 years ago, my son went missing in a New York mall and I went berserk. I had them lock all the doors. The kiosk people were helping me search and he was playing in a toy store. Anyone that's a parent has experienced that. And it is the most terrifying thing on earth to even for seconds to have one of your children missing. You know? Oh yeah. You just have that core feeling like your heart drops into your stomach and you're like, uh, even if it's for four seconds. Yeah, it, it, it's it's terrifying. Snicks Abia, he says, for your information, Hawkins County is one of the eight of the poorest counties in Tennessee. Thank you, Snicks Abia. We're not re really familiar with the county or with the terrain there. Forever Young, interesting to watch YouTube videos and Missing 411 about missing toy. There are cons, parents, still similar stories. 
Linda F. Wendy, I'm sure if Tony Ammons was involved, law enforcement would know it. I'm sure he's been interrogated extensively. Folks, you know, one of the things that that we we're, we're, we're the real police, so we were the real police. And one of the things we do, deal in is facts. And then we cross-check facts to make sure they're verifiable. And I can't tell you how many times that we've also dealt in rumors. And then when rumors turn out to be true, it can set your investigation back. What we hope in this investigation is that law enforcement has a clear direction that they're going in. And they may not, and to no fault of their own. Phil, you've worked homicides before. You've worked missing persons. Mike, you have also. And you know, sometimes the direction of the investigation has to change based on the flux of, of the facts. 100%, Bill, 100%. I just want to make one point about the tips. Now, they're saying 935 tips. Now, I would, anybody that's listened to this that's from that area, if there's something that you think might be relative, err on the side of caution, call. But I had a case a few years back, and it was near 4th of July. People started calling in, uh, you know, bullshit tips on their neighbor. Oh, you know, the guy was shooting fireworks or something. They said, oh, he was involved in the murder. And it sets the detectives off. You know, they're going to send two detectives, go interview the guy. It takes time out of the day. And maybe a good tip might get overlooked or might not, they might not get to it as timely as they would if the bullshit tips didn't come in. So when it comes to tips, 935, that's a lot of tips. I'm sure a lot of legwork went into following those things up. They're probably still working on a lot of those. So if you have something important, call, by all means, call. But if you're going to rat out your neighbor for uh, shooting fireworks because he's breaking your chops and uh, he didn't shovel your snow, don't get into stuff like that, especially on a missing child. You know what I mean? That's really nonsense. Kim uh, Kim Clayton asked, I wonder how long the FBI stays on this case. I think they'll stay on it as long as, yeah, as long as they're needed until it's sure. closed. You know, I think that uh, the FBI has a certain amount of personnel and this, this is a, a case that they should definitely be involved in, you know, they have pockets too. So they're going to, they're going to stick around. And and I know Hawkins County, they said it was one of the poorest counties, but F FBI is involved. They, they got a direction. They need a search warrant. They need to pay for a, a cell dump or a tower dump. They're going to do it. And I'm sure that uh, that's happening. Well, you know, Phil, one of the things that you said also is that, yeah, the FBI seems to have unlimited uh, resources. Absolutely. They, they have the deep pockets of the federal government. For a small town like this, this case could bankrupt them. Yeah, know? they're overwhelmed, I'm sure. Yeah, but it's, uh, you know, and, and the thing is, is that we just hope that the law enforcement, thank you, Princess Mitch, for the 999 Super Chat. We really appreciate that. Uh, you know, we just hope that they, they stay on this case, which we know they're going to, that uh, they get some fresh bodies and they get some fresh minds. You know, Phil, one of the things that I always would do on major cases and people don't realize detectives are not machines. You know, after they work an eight to four, sometimes they have to go home. But in a case like this, usually you're not working eight to four. You're working eight in the morning to 12 at night. And if, necess if necessary, you're staying even later than that. But that takes a toll on your body, takes a toll on your mind. Okay, Jack Images, thank you for the 499 Super Chat. But one of the things I always uh, took pride in was – to do a brand new um, briefing when the tours changed. The, the 8 to 4 was over, the 4 to 12 came in, fresh bodies. I would do a whole briefing to let everyone know where we were in that case, where we were going, what we where we think we were going, 
And one of the things that I always felt as even as a boss, as a sergeant, especially as a boss, I could learn something from anyone. And in these meetings, everyone and anyone was welcome to talk. Anyone could take the the front, you know, the front seat of this talk and tell them what they had or what they thought. And I welcomed it, you know, because that's how you solve these cases. You know, I jokingly said the other day, detectives like to uh you know, hypothesize and theorize. And I used to always say, okay, now you got to typerize, you know, right? Typerize those reports. There goes the boss in them. You know, yeah. No, Get gonna, those fives done. <laughs> I had that famous, my famous detective, Joe the Lip, and he was always hypothesizing and theorizing. And I'd say, Joe, stop hypothesizing and theorizing and start typerizing, you know? <laughs> Get on that typewriter. And, you know, the funny thing is we say a typewriter, it sounds like an antiquated instrument from the uh, 1800s, but on the NYPD, we had them up until about 15, 20 years ago, right, Phil? Yeah, I think maybe even as long, short as 10 years ago. And now everything's on computers and stuff. They they brought them in a little at a time. But uh, when I first got to the squad, guys were typing on the old-fashioned typewriter with the ribbon, not even plug in, not a, not even electric typewriter. They were working on the, uh, the old-fashioned one with two fingers, you know. But uh, And we had the carbons, right, Mike? Remember the carbons? Yeah. They would have yeah. to break down the case and send it to like six different places. Yeah, I used to. And, say the, that, and the IBM Selectric came in. That that was a big. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And, and and if you had one of those, you had to take the ball out because people right. would steal. They would steal the ball. <laughs> Another squad would would steal the ball. Right, right, yeah. exactly. So at nighttime, you had to take the ball home with you, or you had to hide it in your locker, right? And, and then you know, it came out with the ribbon where you could erase with it too. At one point, they, you know, they got better with time, and and you could actually go back. You know, if you had the carbons in there, wouldn't erase that, but you can erase the top page with the uh, with the typewriter if you made a mistake. You know. Oh yeah, we used to use the whiteout. Remember the whiteout? Yeah. I think I think you guys were caught in the in the uh, supply room snorting that stuff. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he got caught. He, he got caught in the supply room snorting the whiteout. You know. <laughs> you made a good point about learning stuff every, you know, you said you, you, you're not uh, afraid to learn something new. Tonight, I learned about the, like with the cell phones, I thought it was only an Apple phone, but uh, Mike said it's it's the other phones too. And he gave a good uh, uh, background on this geofencing. So yeah, you, you're always learning, you know, the technology is always changing. So it's good to be up on these things. 100%. Mike, uh, we're actually at uh, one hour. Uh, you have any final thoughts about uh, the direction of this investigation, the uh, some maybe some different investigative uh, techniques we could use uh, to help these people out? Yeah, I, I mean, I would just I would start it started any any interview anybody at the swimming at that swimming hole or whatever they call it a swimming pool. See if there was any behavior of the parents against the child. Maybe the child did something that, that aggravated them or angered them. Or is there any other children around that that may have been a, a sexual predator? That kind of, that girl, like they they, they, they really uh, honed in on her age or her, her um, blonde hair. I think she may even have blue eyes. And like, sometimes that's an, a fixation for sexual predators. Like they, they get, they get on that, that particular type of uh, victim. Um, did, 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 was there a vehicle that followed them home? Was there, you know, like there, there's just so many questions uh, that need to be asked and, and, and just interviews, 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 you know, do the technology is great. But you still have to talk to people as a detective and get 
uh, the truth out of them, or at least information. You know, Mike, I said that uh, on the, the the episode we had with the panel with uh, Bill Grimaldi, Irma Rivera, uh, Duty Ron, and myself. I said one of the ways that uh, a lot of the uh, squads that I worked in, and especially in the homicide squad too, but I remember the two three squad in Spanish Harlem, El Barrio, we used to call it, right? They used to solve homicides all the time through great interview and interrogation and talking to everyone in the neighborhood and not just talking to them. Bring them in. Bring them in. Come on in. We want to talk to you because you always want to talk to them on your home court, not their home court. You know? Yeah. Oh, we want to talk to you. Come on in. No, you're not in trouble. Come on in. You know? And sometimes people will tell you stuff in the box. They'll never tell you out on the street. You know? Yeah. I had learned. The other thing is, is working with a more seasoned detective, like a mentor, like I worked with my old partner who actually passed away from the 9-11 illness, um, taught me a lot. He was he was a police, he was a detective, a detective, third grade for 22 years, third grade and right. homicide. I worked with him in special frauds. I worked him with, with him career criminal investigations unit. And so having him as, as a teacher and a mentor, seasoned guy, always did great interviews always got Miranda out of the way quickly and then started the started, you know, a conversation with a bad guy. And we usually got a full confession handwritten sometimes by the bad guy. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, it, one of my specialties too, doing a, a good interview and me and my partner, I, we like bounced off of one another. I not always, but a lot of the time I try to play the good guy and he would play the more, you know, I guess the bad cop, you know, and oh, sometimes we both went in there as the good cop. But just like you said, Mike, a good conversation going and just remember what they're saying. Catch them in a couple of lies. And then all of a sudden you hit them with you're going to jail for 25 to life. And the next thing you know, they start telling the truth and uh, that having the right person. I, I think, uh, Bill, you've said this many times on the show. Having the right person in the interview room is key to getting a, uh, a confession out of a subject. You know, also, as a boss, you also have to check the fatigue level of your detectives. If the detective's in the box trying to talk to someone, you could see he's nodding out, he's falling asleep. Because when you're very tired, one of the first things that goes is your patience. You lose patience very quickly. I know I lose, I, I lose it when I'm not tired, you know? So yeah. when people get tired, and I know that uh, as a boss, watching a lot of interviews and interrogations, I would sometimes stop the interview and pull the guy out and say, listen, you're much too tired, man. You're not going to get it. I want to put something right. fresh fresh in there. And I would always ask the guy, do you mind? I don't, I'm not disrespecting you. I just think you're too tired. And, you know, you're not going to get it. I could see the guy's like, he's eating you up instead of the other way around, you know. And uh, usually they would uh, agree and say, yeah, you're right, Sarge. I'm I'm exhausted, you know. And uh, Bill, I'm body in there. I'm glad you brought that up real quick. I know we're short for time, but I had a very important, uh, it was a cop homicide that we worked. And I happened to be on the team when we apprehended the perpetrator. Uh, on a ride back, I said a couple of things to him. He he knew, like he said to me, oh, I know I know what this is about the cop. Anyhow, I get him in the room. He starts confessing. 
I was a rookie detective. They pulled me out of the room and they put a more seasoned detective in. And the guy said, no, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to the other guy. It was me and my partner. My partner had more time than me. But And then a lieutenant from the homicide squad came over and said, would you do me a favor and go back in there? You know, he was kind of with his head down, get get a confession out of this guy. We went back in and we not only got the confession of the, of the, the cop murder, as well as they did like three or four other murders. So uh, sometimes having the right person in there. I just, in that few minute, I, I, I was the one, I put handcuffs on the guy. I arrested him. I had a little conversation with the car, put the fear of God into him. And then he connected with me. And what he wanted was he wanted one last visit with, with his wife before he went. He knew he was going upstate for the rest of his life. And we did that. We gave him we gave him something to eat. We had a little visit with his wife and he gave everything up. So uh, sometimes it's the right person just clicks with the guy. And uh, they, they thought I told him to say that, which obviously wasn't true. But uh, the guy said, no, I only want to talk to him and his partner, you know, and uh, we wound up getting a confession and, and locking up some pretty bad guys. You know, Philly, we had these uh, two detectives from the 2-3 squad. I'll name them by name because uh, they're great guys, great detectives, Porteous and Freitag. And they were interviewing this guy. We were in Willimantic, Connecticut, and the guy did a double murder. And they were in the box with him for six hours. And we had, we had been up for close to 40 hours straight, all, all three of us. And I brought a female detective, uh, Giselle Molina, with us. And they came out after six hours and they said, Sarge, we're dead, man. We're not going to get it. We, we can't do it anymore. Can't do it. So I went to Giselle Molino and I said, Gigi, that was a nickname. I said, could you go in and, and talk to him? And she goes, yeah, you come in with me. I go, no. I go, I'm useless. I am so tired. I have uh, I have the patience of, of forget it. You know, I'd, I'd be slapping him in the head after the first 10 minutes. So she goes in there. She comes out 45 minutes later and she goes, he's going to give the whole thing up. But he wants a, a large pepperoni pizza and two boxes of Newports. And I said, I'll go get it myself. I flew out, got him a large pepperoni pizza, two boxes of Newports. And the perp said something very funny. He said, I don't want to give it up to this female detective. Bring those two bastards in that went at me for six hours. They worked really hard. I'm going to give them the confession. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, you know, it kind of works the other way, too. Um, I, we had a triple homicide in the 3-0. And we, we got the first guy and the, a great detective there, B.A. was his name. And I think Scott Wagner was around then and on it, too. And um, we got the first guy who gave up the second guy. And during the interview of the suspect, the borough of Manhattan detectives uh, captain kept interview, in, in, interrupting the interview. Oh, that's the worst. Because the, the chief of detectives was busting his chops to find out. And then after the third interruption, you know, he, he didn't want to talk anymore. He says, oh, this seems like a big deal, like guys coming in with big, big brass. And so and, and we, we, I mean, it, it was great. We got both guys. But, um, yeah, sometimes you don't want to interrupt the flow of a good interview. No, that's a great and, point. Great you know, point. Mike, anything can make someone invoke Miranda, anything, you know. And now the, it's changed because now I believe it's all videoed. So now they have to go in there and read Miranda. The first three thing. cameras, there's three cameras in every interview room. Yeah. And they have to, they have to read Miranda. The first thing they do, you know, and they years ago, they used to schmooze Miranda, you know, it schmooze the guy to get Miranda to get him waved Miranda, but it, things have changed. Anyway, folks, uh, you heard this panel through all experience NYPD detectives. One of the things I always like to say in doing these podcasts, uh, 
We totally respect the local police. We're not here to solve this case whatsoever because, A, we're not privy to all the information they have. Would we love to work this case and love to help them? We sure would. But we're not going to help them uh, doing a podcast and telling them what to do. And especially, I, I don't think it's a good idea to interview some of the principals in this case, which I've seen some of the channels do. That's not helping law enforcement. You know, that's maybe helping your channel, but that's not helping law enforcement. So I just want to say we pray uh, for Summer Wells that she's found, that she's found alive. And we, we pray that there's closure in this case, that they find the person or persons who did this. And we just want to say to, to, to law enforcement, and I know they won't, but don't give up. Keep your nose to the grindstone. Keep working hard. And and you, this case will be solved. Uh, Phil, I'll give you one last word, and Mike, and then we're going to we're going to uh, sign out and say goodbye. Bill, again, thank you for having me tonight. It was a pleasure to meet Mike and hear his uh, his take on the, the uh, technology. Uh, you like like I said earlier, you learn something new every day, and uh, I'm really hoping and praying that uh, the, that there could be a conclusion to this case. I would love for it to be uh, that she's found alive and safe, and uh, with the help of God and uh, you know, and whoever is responsible for her disappearance, I'm sure. They're going to be brought to justice, and I just hope it's sooner rather than later. Thanks. Well, I concurred it with that. You know, hopefully, one, she's found alive, but uh, if someone is involved, um, that they are brought to justice. Bill, thank you for having me. And uh, anytime you have any questions, you know, just uh, ring well, me Mike, up. Well, uh, Mike, yeah, I want to, I want to visit you in uh, Silicon Valley since I know you're only a half hour from Napa Valley that has the best – California Cabernet on this earth. So I got to visit you one of these days. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I kind of have an open door, you know, I have an apartment available for NYPD guys that, you know, cause they don't want to spend for a hotel. So you could stay at my house. You're the man, you're the man. What a, <laughs> what a great guy. Here's my former professor, you know, and, and you know, it's funny. He was, uh, he's younger than me too. And he was my professor, but that was cool. You know, long time ago, right, Mike? That was quite a long time. Like, I, I, I don't really remember. I, I got a, I got an A. Were you crazy? Yes. All right. I, I threatened you in the supply you clause. Did <laughs> you sign an overtime sheet or something? Uh, you could probably hey. that nice cabinet. Here you go. That's right. Duty Ron, thank you so much for uh, the $5 Super Chat. And Duty Ron, all you have done for the Police Off the Cuff podcast and all I know you're going to do in the future. And you know that if I can help you, I will. Uh you know, it's almost like we want to say like Marines, Semper Fi, or on the NYPD, we say Fidelis said Mortem, right? You know that if you're in the Honor Legion. What does that yeah. mean, Phil? Phil, what uh, does that mean? Oh, uh, you're throwing me a curveball. I know, I know you're in the Honor Legion. You have to know that. Fidelis, Fidelis Ed Mortem. I know it, but I don't. I can't remember it. I know I've heard it, but I just can't remember it. It means faithful until death. Faithful until death. Okay, okay. Listen, big shout out to Duty Run. Great guy, big supporter of the show. And retired Sergeant Melinda, she said it for me. Hoorah, hoorah. I love that. You know, I love, I had a bunch of guys uh, when I was in homicide. Well, one guy, what I used to, uh, used to drive me, I used to drive around with him. Tommy Clark was a Marine. And whenever he saw Tommy him, Clark. Yeah, what a suit. I love Tommy Clark. Oh, uh, I worked with him in the six old Great guy. I love him. God, God rest his soul, you know. But yeah. whenever he saw another Marine on the street, he was like, and I was like, what are you yeah. doing? You know, and the guy's across the other side of the street. And he's yelling to him. It was almost yeah. like the He-Man, you know, you ever seen the little rascals when they do that little signal? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or my right. old, <laughs> you know, but he was he was yelling, he was yelling hoorah. Anyway, Tom folks. Clark, good guy. Rest in peace, Tommy. I love Tommy. Uh, Nana617, thank you so much for the 499 super sticker. Oh, you folks, if you haven't uh, subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, we're going to have uh, some more great shows like this. Phil Grimaldi, who uh, who I love, man. Phil coming right out of Brooklyn. He, I tell you, he really reminds me of Joe Pesci. And uh, and we're gonna, we're, you know, when I can get, you're a funny uh, guy, Bill. You're a funny guy. <laughs> How am I funny? You're a little funny, Bill. You're a little funny. <laughs> uh, Jr., thank you so much for the ten dollars super sticker. And if I can get, you know, Mike Fabozzi is going to be a multimillionaire very soon with this company he's got. You know, it's going to be tougher and tougher to get him on these podcasts. But every once in a while, I get him. He's available and he comes on. He's all the way from the West Coast. Mike, thank you so much for all you do. And I really appreciate you coming on. For you folks that watch tonight, thank you so much for supporting Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. And we'll say a prayer for Summer Wells. Thank you so much. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. <laughs>